This is an ABC podcast. My guest on Conversations today is Andrew Gregg. Andrew loves his homeland, Scotland, especially its wild places. He lives part of the year on the Orkney Islands, which are way up north, just a hop, skip and a jump from Iceland and Norway. Andrew spends much of his time in Orkney writing. He's a poet, and he's also written books about his expeditions to the Himalayas and about his trips fishing in the remote hill locks of the northwest of Scotland. Hi, Andrew. Hey, good morning from where I am, which well, where is in you, Orkney. Tell me about the town. What's it look like? Um, the, the outstanding feature is the Viking Cathedral, um, built 12-something or other. It's literally built by the Vikings to apologise for having buried an axe in St Magnus's head uh, by way of resolving a dispute. And it's a wonderful um, red and yellow sandstone building, um, not the biggest cathedral in the world, but it's got lovely acoustics. And a few years ago they found when renovating it inside one of the two central columns, a skull with an axe cleft in its top of it. And that's in, that detail is in the saga about how the, the axe man refuses to cut off Magnus's head, but instead Magnus suggests he hits him on top of his head. And they found the skull. How incredible. I had no yeah. idea the Vikings built cathedrals in, in acts of reparation. <laughs> yeah, this, uh, by this point, they, they were Christian, but a Christian kind of axe moving sort. <laughs> I live in Stromness, which is about 12 miles away on the west side of the island. And it is much uh, smaller and more well old. I mean, Stromness is basically a 17th, 18th century town built on the Hudson Bay Company and whaling and fishing. And so it's got a lot more, you might call it ethnic architecture, some really, really bonny buildings. <laughs> and it's by the sea, and it's full of these little piers, individual piers that fishermen built before they made themselves a proper harbour. And the ferry that you catch over from the mainland mm. of Scotland, what kind of crossing is that? What, what are the waters <laughs> like? Well, Pentland Firth, which is the crossing that you have to do between Scotland and Orkney, is one of the, apparently one of the worst crossings in the world because it's where the Atlantic Ocean and the North Sea meet and kind of exchange the currents and salinities. I was just talking to um, my producer Rob here, remembering the, of the 70s and 80s, the older boats, and they took two hours and it was not pleasant. <laughs> it was the kind of tax you had to pay to, to live in this wonderful place. Can you please read read us your poem, Andrew, called Orkney, This Life, which I, I think you wrote on the ferry, is that right? Um, well, I did. This was at one specific time when I was lying down, which is my practice on that boat, feeling particularly nauseous. It was awful. And suddenly I thought, why do I live in this bloody place? that you have to do this crossing every time you arrive and depart. And then the answer kind of announced itself in my head and there's a kind of clear, quiet voice that I've learned to listen to. And I forced myself to prop myself up and write it down. And it came out in a wanna, um, just changed a couple of words. And the poem is called Orkney, This Life. And it is an answer to the question of why do I live in this bloody <laughs> place? <laughs> OK. It is big sky and its changes, the sea all round and the waters within. It is the way sea and sky work off each other, constantly, like people meeting in Alfred Street, each face coming away with a hint of the other's face pressed in it. It is the way a week-long gale ends, and folk emerge to hear a single bird cry way high up. It is the way I lean to you, and the way you lean to me, as if we were each other's prevailing. The way we are tidal islands to each other, joined for hours, then inaccessible. I'll go for that, and smile when I pick sand off myself in the shower. It is the way Scotland looks to the south. The way we enter friends' houses to leave what we came with, or flick the kettle switch and wait. This is where I want to live, close to where the heart gives out, ruined, perfected, an empty arch against the sky where birds fly through instead of prayers, while in hoy sound the ferry's engines thrum this life, this life, this life. I can see why it's worth the trip. Indeed. It is, yeah. Yeah. It's it's summertime there at the moment, of course, Andrew. So does that mean it's light late into the night? Yes. Uh, the sun goes down 
about 10, just before 10.30. Um, but it goes low under the horizon, so it, you know, it's, you could still be reading a book um, you know, at about 1 o'clock or so, and then it starts getting light properly from about 3-ish. In winter, the downside is the days are extremely short and very dark and frequently very windy, not cold, because it's all surrounded by, by the sea. So ice, snow are fairly rare, but it is dark and windy and you get battered around going down the street. I love it. <laughs> you love it? It's really dramatic. Yeah, it's really dramatic because, I mean, winter in Britain, let us be frank, is pretty horrible <laughs> wherever you are. And the good thing about being in Orkney is it's dramatically horrible. <laughs> so you kind of congratulate yourself and people you meet just on being there. Just on making it down to, to get milk and back. Does the population yeah, right. shrink over winter time then? Well, it's down to the hardcore. There's no visitors, basically. Um, and the, above all, the farm is fishing and farming and tourism as the main economy, apart from a small oil, oil terminal. What this means, all those go quiet in winter, so winter's when all the parties, pubs and clubs and shenanigans go on, because people kind of keep their spirits up over winter, so it's an immensely sociable time, whereas now in high summer, most of the folk I know are just working flat out, or they've gone south in the school holidays, you know, for a few weeks. So we are, winter is, is kind of great. Uh, I miss it. Uh, nowadays I'm only here in the summer months. You first came to live in the Orkneys as an adult. What are people like who've, who've been raised there? Is there a kind of character that's, that's tangible among locals? Well, put it this way, I came from Shetland where I'd been doing an archaeological dig. This must have been in the early 80s. And Shetland is bleak and, and it's another 60 miles out in its very poor agriculture. It's a wonderful culture, I loved it. But coming to Orkney, my first impression was it's green. So Orkney is bare, there's not many trees, but it's actually very fertile because the Vikings were blooming hard making it agricultural. So you've got great fat beasts and sheep the size of sofas. And, <laughs> and I was brought up in farming country, and much as I like wilderness, and I do, I really like seeing land used and a viable economy. So if you've got to picture Orkney as an extremely viable place with comparatively low unemployment and an awful lot of social support mechanisms built into its nature. Another way of putting that is Orkneyans are very inquisitive. <laughs> they like to know who you are, what are you doing and how long are you going to stay. So when I first came here, I was hitching everywhere. I didn't have a car. And the number of people, women driving on their own, would stop and pick you up because they wanted to find out <laughs> who are you, where are you from, have you been in Orkney long, do you like it? <laughs> and I, I, honestly, after about two or three hours of being here, this is way back, I thought I want to be connected to this place for the rest of my life. That's never happened to me before or since. So it's that mixture of big sky, sea, air, simple elementals, the fertility and above all probably the society, the group of people that I meet and know here. It's interesting, islands can sometimes be quite insular places, they but can. the way you're describing it, it, it sounds quite outward-looking. Well, that's right, and there's a reason for that, that um, Orkney has traditionally been connected a lot to the rest of the world by the Hudson Bay Company, which at its height was 75% Orcadian. They ran up of Canada, simple as that. They were massive in the tea trade and, and whaling, so they sailed all over the world. So it's, it is an island, but what you have to remember is that islands were a great way of, of travelling. They were on the, the motorway of the road. Places that people didn't go anywhere was inland, because inland travel was really hard work and people didn't bother moving. So Orkney, in all its life, has been very connected to the world, particularly to Norway. It was part of Norway for about four or five hundred years. And I think that's formed the character. And Orkney themselves have travelled a lot. They come back. And that's the other great thing about it. It's a good place to come back to, particularly um, at that point in your life when you're thinking about having a family and you can get good professional jobs here at national rates, secure jobs, and you can live really nicely amongst uh, people you know and like in safe environments, good schools. We don't lock cars. I mean, it's just bad manners to lock the car. <laughs> and it takes me a few weeks to get used to this idea. You walk into people's houses, like I say, and flick the kettle switch and wait for them to, to come back. And that is a... You can't buy that. And most Orcadians know it's a very good thing to be born Orcadian. A lot of them go away south for further education 
and a striking number come back under those, the returnees, I call them. And the returnees are the glue between incomers like myself and the natives who haven't left. They kind of hold the whole lot together. You say in, uh, that it's in winter, Andrew, that the best parties happen yeah. there. Where's, where do you go to hear music and play music? What's that kind of scene like? Well, mostly I go to friends' houses where we have, you know, like a dozen folk. I know lots of very good musicians here and I play banjo with great enthusiasm, if not, <laughs> not necessarily great expertise. So basically I'm singing and playing with pals, usually in their houses, sometimes in the back room of pubs, obviously not during COVID. And um, occasionally, just occasionally, I will go somewhere to one of the outer islands and actually get paid for it, which is really nice. Usually the payment is mostly supper and tea and free, free booze for the evening. There's a lot of live music here and some very good musicians. And it's not just fiddle playing, there's a lot of that. Um, say banjo players, melodeon players, flute players. It's, it's a very musical environment and I love that. How did music first come into your life? Tell me about that. Oh, well, Jimmy Shand, a great Scottish accordionist, was the first record I heard. And the accordion is very loud. <laughs> I was very impressed by its loudness. And he played jigs and reels and strathspeys and polkas. His best thing was the, the Bluebell Polka, which was produced, not enough people know this, by George Martin, who produced The Beatles. The Beatles, gosh. Yeah, he did a whole bunch of Jimmy Shand singles, including the Bluebell Polka, and I was taken to see Jimmy Shand and in Stirling when I was about nine and I just loved it. These huge men in kilts and about six accordions. <laughs> it was deafening. <laughs> and the next thing I heard was the Beatles, I Want to Hold Your Hand. And I loved that, you know. So basically what happened was rock and roll hit me at just that age. And so the Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks and the Who and the Billy things and then Dylan taught me about words. So my life, like many other writers of my generation, I mean, was essentially dominated by music and the desire to write songs and be a musician. Thinking of friends like, 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 like Ian Rankin and Ian Banks, Val McDermott, all of us must confess that what we really wanted to be and tried to be when we were 4, 15, 16, 17, was singers, musicians, players. But eventually, you know, you realise what you're actually good at. <laughs> and, you, you know, and that's what you stick to. But when we get together, we often play music. It, it's funny. I don't often think of poetry as being um, the more secure option for someone to take, Andrew. <laughs> but, but how did poetry then end up being the, the career path rather than rock and roll for you? Well, that, yeah, well, what happened was I was writing songs and mysteriously no one wanted to give me a record contract. So a lot of the lyrics spilled over. And I started reading poetry and quite a lot of it particularly this, this man, Norman McKay. But I was reading a lot of uh, continental poetry in translation, French and German and Italian. And I discovered that I liked writing just the words because I've never been a great singer, so I didn't have to sing them anymore. And it satisfied some part of me. And then people started publishing them when I was still at school, which was really nice. And I got first paid by the BBC Five Guineas for two poems um, to do on the radio. I've always loved radio as a result. I mean, five guineas, that's five pounds, five shillings, was quite a lot of money in 1969. And I thought, blimey, you can get off with this. <laughs> did they pay you by the word, Andrew, or how did they come up with that figure? Well, that's right, yeah, well, <laughs> they pay you by the 32nd. So <laughs> us poets of my generation learned to speak very slowly. <laughs> Because <laughs> once you got past the 30-second mark, you're into the next half minute and the next half minute. So basically, we, you know, we were, a lot of us were frustrated musicians who kind of drifted into poetry and story and storytelling. The storytellers became novelists, but I struck with the poetry for hmm. about 15 years before a strange accident of a man in a pub got me into writing prose. Well, tell me about this strange, uh, this strange meeting. <laughs> How did poetry get you invited to climb the Himalayas? OK, well, this is bizarre, but true. I was living in South Queens Ferry and I met a man, I was introduced to a man in a pub in South Queens Ferry who was a real Himalayan mountaineer. What we had in common was I'd written about seven years ago a book of poems, narrative poems, called Men on Ice which was notionally about a bunch of mountaineers on a mountain. But the mountain was very metaphorical. It was the 70s. Essentially, it was about getting high. It was about sex, drugs, rock and roll, and pure thought. 
I'd done a philosophy degree. And I'd written entirely of my own entertainment. It never crossed my mind anyone would want to publish this massive piece of indulgence. But Canongate, my first proper publisher, did want to. And it was reviewed in the climbing journals, as if it was really about mountaineering <laughs> the Himalayas. So when I met Mal Duff, he said, oh, you, are you Andy Gregg that wrote Men and Ice? And I said, yeah. He said, look, I'm, I'm going on an expedition in six months to the Mustag Tower in the Himalayas. Why don't you come and climb with us? And because I, we'd had drink and I never thought I'd see him again, I said, yeah, sure, why not, why not? And that's what happened. And about a week later, he, he walked into my house, banged on the door, walked in and said, it's there if you want it. And I said, what? I said, the Himalayas, man, Mustag Tower, Karakoram. Talk to our sponsor, he wants you there. All you have to do is write a book about it and, you know, climb the top with us. Had you done uh, much climbing before this, no, Andrew? Well, I, at this point, I had to come clean and say, well, that's an interesting idea, Malcolm, but I've never climbed anything. I, I mean, I hill walked. I, I love the Scottish hills. I, I walked up them, but nothing steep, because the second problem was I've always been seriously scared of heights. <laughs> oh, no. Exposure and look at the, going up a, a monument or something like the Scott Monument in Edinburgh really makes my legs feel all wobbly and get strange shooting electrical charges up and down. <laughs> And so I said this, you know, I'd love to come, but I don't know, I, I've never technically climbed. I've never climbed in winter, and I'm really scared of heights. And he said, oh, OK, um, well, you'll get used to that. <laughs> and he said, fortunately, I'm a, I'm a guide now. I've, if you go into training now, in six months, you should be fit to at least not get killed in the mountains. You can climb with us up to a certain point. He said, 20,000 feet, that should be enough. And we'll have walkie-talkies, and you can, you know, keep in touch with us for the rest of it, and then write this book about it. So how did you how did you train? How did you learn to climb in six months so that you'd be ready for the Himalayas? You know, I started running and so long four short South Queen's and so I started I was young enough, you know, to get fit enough for that aspect of it. Lots of toe ups and pull ups and all that. Uh, and then Maldov took me to Glencoe mostly for the winter where he had a chalet and that was part of his living. He was teaching climbing. And he taught me this, how to strap on crampons and use ice axes. And we took it from there, um, ropes, knots, harnesses. What about the, the fear of heights, Andrew? Did you try to address that? Yeah. <laughs> well, that didn't go away. All I found that could help was if I concentrated really hard on what was right in front of me, particularly when I was going up. And you're going up, there's a lot of adrenaline and some sheer fear, anger. Fear becomes anger, I think, Bloody hell, I'm going to do this, going to do this, going to do it. The hard bit for me was always when you had to stop partway up a climb to belay, and then you start belaying the other climber on his rope. And then you start to look down, and then you just felt, I felt, awful. And so I just stared at the rock right in front of me, trying to, you know, think about the geology of the crystals in front of me and the ice formations. So only pure concentration and necessity and sometimes adrenaline but it, ne it never got that much better. I, the point was that I really wanted to go to the Himalayas. I wanted to have an adventure. I had never expected any adventures with the rising life, and I was fine with that. But when someone offers you a gig like that, I knew I'd reproach myself for the rest of my life if I didn't go. So in fact, it's mostly about fear again. The fear of not of how bad I'd feel if I didn't go made me say, yeah, OK, I'll do it. What went through your mind when you stood before this this ice tower in the Himalayas that you had gone to climb? <laughs> well, I don't know if it's repeatable on radio. <laughs> the first time <laughs> it went through my mind. But let us see. I thought, hmm, it's very big. One, the first problem was was getting to the, the serious part of the mountain. You had to go through one of these ice falls, which is a shambles that occurs at the end of a glacier where it kind of drops off. And the ice fall was like the... A wintry brain. It was huge, like they have it on Everest as well. Very dangerous place. Kind of place that climbers don't like because it's what they call objective danger. And that's a danger they can't control. Ice towers collapse, crevasses open up, snow bridges fall in. They don't like that kind of thing. Well, to me, it was all dangerous and scary. So I didn't take the ice fall that much more seriously. But we had some really hairy times in that because once the sun hits it, temperature starts to rise and these bridges and towers start collapsing all around you. And huge blocks, you know, the size of houses come down. Very dangerous place. You, you've got to get through it as quickly as you can. 
but you're at about 18,000 feet, so you're not getting that much oxygen and you're carrying a heavy pack. So there's a limit to how fast you can actually do it. So every time you went through that, because uh, we built a series of camps up the mountain, you, you know, you, you were taking a risk and you knew it, everybody knew it. So you just uttered a wee prayer and uh, went for it. <laughs> Did that first trip make you hungry for more of that kind of climbing? Uh, well, I didn't, I didn't expect ever to do another trip. That wasn't the, the understanding. But while Maldorf and I were sitting in a cafe in Royal Pindi, waiting for the monsoon to ease, we were joined by two Norwegians from one of the mountains next to us up the Baltoro, and they told us that two of the early climbers had been killed on the way down. And which is obviously terrible. We knew them a bit. But when they went away, Mar, who'd been very quiet, turned to me and said, how do you fancy coming to Everest, Andy? I said, how? He said, well, those guys have a permit to Everest. There's a 10-year queue. I think I can buy it from them because they won't be going now because two of the main climbers are dead. And I said, I didn't think you were interested in Everest, Mar. It's a pretty old hat. And he said, I'm very interested in the Tibet side of Everest and I'm very interested in the unclimbed ridge the only major route that was left undone in Everest. He said, if we can raise £100,000, he tossed off the figure, we, we can go. You, you'll be in Tibet. No one's been in Tibet since the Chinese invaded in the 30s. Wouldn't that be great? And again, I thought he was joking. So I said, yeah, sure, OK, let's do that. And about nine months later, there we were, <laughs> into Tibet and uh, Pala Palace. What was Tibet in 1985 like? Very different from now. We were in Lhasa for a week waiting for our gear to come through and we saw and heard not a single European, or American for that matter. I mean, it's very, very different now, but it was, well, Tibetan. There was a lot of building going on, but they hadn't been opened and the Chinese were fairly relaxed, so you could go into people's houses, Tibetans' houses, without being, you know, followed and watched. Mm. And the, the rural parts of Tibet were just incredible, huge acres of nothing, and suddenly a man and a horse would appear, and some yaks, and people in st strange outfits. They thought we were weird. Two of us had red hair, and, <laughs> and one of us had very blonde hair and blue eyes, and they stared at us, and we stared at them. <laughs> it was wonderful. It's a very Buddhist country, so they've got all these prayer flags and prayer wheels everywhere. It's like Scotland turned Buddhist, absolutely <laughs> Lovely. There's a purity about that culture and that country that we all loved. And when we were coming towards Everest, the first time we saw it, even the most hard-bitten of the guys who had grown up on these photos of Everest from this side, all the pre-war trips were on the Tibet side, we just stood there and somebody said, it's very big, because <laughs> it towered above everything else that was, on, that was in front of our eye line. And it is mind-bogglingly big, going for the steepest, hardest <laughs> route on it. And did you climb that as well, Andrew, well, or were I, you at the base? Well, I, uh, no, I, I climbed um, to 23,000 feet on it, which is quite high enough. That was um, well up the, the first sections. So your base was where you recuperated, but you were at about 16,000 feet, so in fact you didn't recuperate much. Then up to the next three camps up, you were not recuperating, you were basically slowly dying. And after that, you hit the mountain proper. So I went up the mountain proper twice for about three or four days each time. And everybody, you lose weight, a little cut just oozes and never repairs itself because your white blood count drops off. Your red blood cells are four or five times more numerous and you get this kind of purple ooze comes out of fingers, see, if you cut your finger. And, and that's what catches what oxygen there is, the red blood cells. So basically, you, you are dying and in serious danger of thrombosis and edema, water on the brain and water in the lungs, more than actually falling off the mountain. You had kind of fallen into this world, as you say, but mm. what did you observe about the, the type of people who are really committed mountaineers, people like your friend Maldav? What I found so freeing about them was they lived a bit like fighter pilots in the Second World War. I mean, people did die. Uh, it was high, the cutting edge, it's seriously risky. And that gave them a certain lightness of being, tendency to laugh and carry on and have high jinks while they could. And that I found, and the other thing we had in common was we both had a passion which made little sense to other people, but for which we sacrificed a great deal of uh, relationships, money, 
and that was what we connected about, the fact we had a passion which was a mystery to everybody else. And I really loved those people, and I found their lightness and joy of being very, very conducive to my more moody thoughts, <laughs> my tendency to think. It's not that they didn't think, they did, but the way they expressed it was in dangerous activities. The demanded you had to concentrate. I never met one who had a, a kind of death wish. What they, these people have is a very, very powerful life wish. So at the point where you and I would give up and then just let yourself sink into the snow, they go on and they go on and they go on because they really want to live. But the only way they can feel how much they want to live is by pushing it around the edges and the margins of what is possible. What happened to your to your dear friend, Malcolm Duff? Um, well, Mal finally had died on Everest at base camp, in fact, in his sleeping bag with a book over his chest. I never found out what book it was. Probably heart failure or uh, a stroke. You, you can't do autopsies up in, in Everest, um, so he never had a full aut- autopsy. That kind of put the end of my Himalayan stuff. I kept doing Scottish climbing for another five years or so. But frankly, a lot of the joy had gone out of it. I did, the time had passed. I still see my climbing friends. I still think they're great company. But I moved on to other kind of excitations and solutions. On air, online and on the ABC Listen app. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. You can subscribe to the Conversations podcast. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Leslie Glaster is also a writer. How did the two of you meet? We met um, at a place called Moniac Vor, which is a, a, a recreative writing place, residential place in the Scottish Highlands, quite near Inverness. I'd never heard of her. She'd never heard of me, but I read the, you know, the blurb about her. I thought, my goodness, this woman has brought up three children on her own on her writing. She'd written, I think, seven novels at the point. I thought respect and she's bonny too <laughs> I don't know and she'd read up on me and thought who is this mad poet that goes to the Himalayas he sounds a bit dodgy but you know he's quite nice looking she said <laughs> and nature took its course she's five years younger than me but her brothers are about my age and we connected over the music of the time so Leslie had been brought up on her bro- elder brother's music so she was knowledgeable about children about Leonard Cohen about the incredible string band and I just thought she was great, frankly. And it was a very intense place and time. We taught teaching all day, but in the evenings we took walks and talked. And one thing led to another. But there was problems, obviously, because, you know, she was living in Sheffield and I was living in Orkney and in Edinburgh. Um, so it took us a few years to finally sort out our... Pro- and it's partly, I think, we sorted it out finally because I had got extremely ill. Well, tell, tell me about that. What, what happened to you? Well, I had the thing called a colloid cyst, it turned out. Uh, it's a non-cancerous growth in the brain, which blocked the, the, the brain drains, which allows uh, all that cerebral fluid to drain down your spinal column. I got terrible headaches and then became quite disorientated. She was away for a week teaching somewhere, but she had, mercifully, a lodger. And in the morning, I'd been throwing up all night and groaning. I mean, it was agonising. But I didn't have the energy or capacity to do anything about it, just try to get through the night and keep taking painkillers. And she was just about to go to work and she said, do you want me to call an ambulance? You don't look well at all. And I, I said, no, no. I just didn't want any fuss. I just wanted to lie down. And in the last minute, as she's going out the door, I changed her mind and I said, yeah, please. And the next thing I can remember was my bare foot on the pavement being carried into an ambulance. And then I was into a very odd place, mm-hmm. kind of coma. X number of hours until a surgeon took a lucky guess, as he put it, and 
drilled into my head, reached the pressure that was squashing my brain down to about half its size, he said jo joyously. <laughs> I mean, your brain gets squashed against your skull to half its size. He said, most of it will, will come back, probably, but we can't be sure. And so he put a drain, which I still have, um, rather than remove the cyst. He said, I could remove it, but uh, it might damage your areas of memory and reasoning. Um, do you need memory and reasoning in your occupation? I said, well, yeah. He said, well, if you're a plumber, which I thought was rather cruel, if you're a plumber, I might just go ahead. But if you're a writer, you know, you probably need these higher centres. Oh, I think pl I think plumbers need their memory their memory as well to be quite honest. But memory is absolutely crucial to, to, to what I do. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah, I, I still have this drain. I, my brain basically drains into my lower abdomen, and it's it's plastic. It'll outlast me. It's fine. You were in a coma. Can you remember anything about about that time? Is it just a blank? No, um, it was very. I was in some kind of blue strange room and there was spectral looking people moving strange looking apparatus about the place in an air of hushed quiet and I was just aware that if I couldn't I couldn't stay here very long and one thing was to freak out or give up and not be there anymore or else I had to hang on and there was, that was that was the options and I wasn't thinking at all really clear that was just a vivid impression and what happened was I a series of friends came to see me. My friend Anthea Joseph from the music world that I knew from London days. And um, she came and talked to me about the music gossip and business stuff. Because she died from alcohol some years before. And then my father came to me and was talking about the pleasures of, of playing up the first fairway in Anstruther in a sunny morning. He died about ten years before that. And then Mal Duff came and said, you know, I'm thinking about an expedition to go dinosaur hunting in the swamps of Zaire. Do you fancy that? <laughs> so basically, and he died, of course, um, on Everest. So all three of these people were kind of giving me reasons to, to hang on. Now, the point is, I was in a deep coma. My eyes had been shut the entire time I'd been in this room. And it had a stippled blue ceiling. That's, that's what I saw. And when I finally came to whatever, 12, 14 hours later after the operations, I was looking at a stippled ceiling and there's room of people wheeling equipment around in tubes. And I had tubes coming out of me, including one leading a kind of grey fluid into a kind of like a goldfish bag. That was my brain fluid <laughs> draining into it. And it was the same room and I've never understood how I was able to see a room that I was never conscious in with my eyes closed in the deep coma. I don't have any beliefs about this, but it's just a fact. It's one of those things that I cannot explain away, that I saw stuff and visits by three people who were absolutely dead and yet came to tell me useful, helpful and supportive things. It's one of these kind of sometimes mysterious things happen in your life um, mm. and you just have to accept them. And I have no conclusions about it, but it's there. Did coming that close to death change the way you thought about your life? Yeah, yeah, it did. I felt very... I was saying to my wee brother after some months after, you know, I, I'm, I find myself thinking about being dead an awful lot or dying. And I said, I think it's, you know, because of this brain problem. And he said, no, you're always morose. <laughs> <laughs> and we laughed, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it, what it did make me, and I've talked to other people who have these, because I'm not at all unique in this. Lots of people have had heart attacks and strokes and lived. But we all seem to share a sense of fragility. I felt like I was made of glass and I was semi-transparent and that at any moment this edifice, this living body could just shatter. So I felt very fragile and limited in energy, but not just that. My sense of, it's as if I knew to my core what it is to be dying and that this will happen and that's why I went back up to Orkney and ended up playing golf which I hadn't done since I was a child and adolescent I re-engaged I re in this game which had been the passion of my childhood and youth uh, and g golf healed me. Golf, so not cli climbing it. mountains is one thing, but exactly. golf coming in to heal someone is is quite different. What did golf give you? Well, it's well, it's it's very connecting. You you golf is a game played on a, a across the landscape, 
you're walking up and down this Lynx course, that's a seaside course in Scotland, with wonderful outlooks to Hoy in the mountains. You can hear the tide race, you smell cut grass. It's very about being physically present, physically alert and alive. There's also the joy of timing, because the, the timing still, I still had that from being 16, 17. I could fact was I could whack a ball a surprisingly big distance, and it really gave me a great, absurd amount of pleasure. <laughs> um, I, I never played competitive golf since I was 17, and mostly I played this by myself, and it was a joy. It was like a walking meditation, and I, I loved that about it. And it also connected me to my father. It was him that taught me the game. And I got to thinking a lot more about golf, why it's so Scottish and how different it is. Because in Scotland, golf is not regarded as posh at all. It's not about social networking or business stuff. It's a cheap game played by ordinary local people. And it's a great equaliser. So in Anstar, the golf course, the bank manager and the minister and the fisherman, the joiner, all played with and against each other. And all could be equally humbled. It didn't matter, you know, who you were. Golf has always been that. It's been a, a great leveller. And I love the honesty of the game because you can't blame an opponent because they're not allowed to interfere with you. In fact, if you're playing with and against somebody, you're supposed to be helping them. You're supposed to watch where their ball goes. You're supposed to help them find it. You're supposed to remove the pin for them. And my father made it very clear that etiquette in golf is not an add-on. It's the very heart of it. Etiquette. So it's a very solitary Presbyterian game because <laughs> it's all about self-abuse and self-blame. You know, you, it's your fault. It's nobody else's fault. Very Scottish. But equally, it's a remarkably sociable game that you are having to look out for and be with you know, the person or people that you're, you're playing with. So I started musing about all these things and eventually uh, my wife said, you know, well, why don't you write a book about it rather than telling about this game? <laughs> <laughs> and I did. I, I wrote a book called Preferred Lies, um, which it was ending up being about my father, about, about the Scottishness. About very, I went and played in some very elemental golf courses. There's one in North Ronaldsey, one of our islands here, which is free. And um, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's like an ur-golf. It's golf before the invention of bunkers and greens. But it's wonderful, because it's what they played in the 16th century. St Andrews, again, had no greens. They didn't cut them. They didn't roll them. So it was like going back and finding a living ancestor of the game I loved. And I played that out in these islands. I played it on Iona, one of the most lovely islands in Scotland, where Christianity came from Ireland to Scotland. And they've got another lovely free golf course. The great thing, though, is that the worst that can happen on a golf course is you humiliate yourself and you lose your ball, <laughs> which after the Himalayan stuff seemed quite <laughs> quite welcome. So, I mean, you get very tense, and, you know, and uh, you brood for hours about that putt you missed. And how stupid, how could you have done that? But nobody dies. <laughs> I want to ask about a, another relationship with an older man, not your dad, but Norman McCaig. Oh, McCaig, yeah. yes. So back when you were a teenager, how was it mm. that you became close to this much older Scottish poet, Norman okay. McCaig? Well, McCaig um, used to publish poems in The Weekend Scotsman, which my parents got. And so I read them, and th th I loved them, partly because they were about... Ascent, which is a part of the far northwest of Scotland and McCaig's heartland. He went there every year. He loved that place. And so I, th and I was writing poems. Um, he's about 16, coming 17. And I thought, McCaig would want to read these poems. <laughs> and absurdly, I typed them out on a very bad typewriter and posted them just to sort of basically say, hi, I write poetry too about Ascent. <laughs> and to my amazement, I got a note back from Come and See Me and his schoolmasterly hand, and I did, and I'd never been to Edinburgh by myself before. I was, was so out of my depth. And I found his flat, came to see him, and we talked first about Ascent, about hills, and eventually picked up this shabby group of poems, which I'd been so excited about, and I could see now were dreadful. He said, I have read your poetry. I quite liked some of them, but then I would because they're quite like mine. <laughs> I was devastated because, of course, it was true. It was very normal cake. It was, it was fine, funny, acidic and true. <laughs> and also, I later realised, very generous, because what he was saying was, you don't have to write like me for us to get on. He was saying the opposite. And they eventually took one of them and said, this one might be one of yours, given time. 
<laughs> so he basically was a kind of mentor in that sense. That he told me it was okay to be serious about poetry, but not to be earnest about it. But you could take it seriously. In fact, you had to for it to be ever any good. And it was a ceaseless thing of self-criticism and self-improvement. And he, we became good friends. I would see him quite often on the circuit. We'd read together. I'd, I'd be at his readings. He would fill in forms and help me get, you know, bursaries and grants. But in his late years, he was more or less confined to his flat and he couldn't go to um, Ascent anymore. And it was very sad. But he was sitting there one night, just the two of us, about one or two in the morning, a fair bit of whiskey taken. And he, I said, Norman, where's your favourite place in the world? And he said, oh, it has to be the Loch of the Green Corrie, though it's not called that. And then he said, in fact, I should like you to go there and fish for me. If you catch a fish, I shall be delighted. And if you fail, then looking down from a place in which I do not believe, I shall be most amused. <laughs> <laughs> and the next time I saw him, I was at his funeral, and just a few months later. And I had to do it. I mean, basically, I felt he'd la laid this quest, this request on me to find the lock of the Green Corrie. And he wouldn't, he was mischievous. He wouldn't tell me its, it's name on the map, which was in Galway. But so how did, how did you find it if you, if you, well, you didn't know the name? Well, I didn't know the name yet. He, he said, if you go to Loch Inver and ask for a man called Norman McCaskill, if he likes you, he may tell you where it is. <laughs> so I had to go four years later with two fishing friends who could really fish well, the Dover brothers. And I went to Loch Inver, and the first thing I saw was a butcher called um, something like A. McCaskill, and I thought, it's got to be a relative, surely. It's a small place. It wasn't, but I went into the shop and said, oh, yes, Norman lives along the street, the last cottage on the left. So I went and found this rather gruff, acerbic, elderly, suspicious gentleman who, yes, admitted he had fished a lot with Norman, and yes, he knew the lock of the Green Corrie, but why did I want to know? What did I want to go there for? And I said, well, I, I cared about Norman a great deal, and he asked me to do this. Anyway, eventually he took a pencil out from behind his ear, and he was one of those old men who like keep a pencil behind their ear. I remember it. Took out my map and looked, peered, and then circled a thing called Corrie Lochan Nagurm. I think that's roughly the pronunciation, which literally means lock of the Green Corrie. So, yeah, we, we went, I went there and camped with my friends. And and, and what did it fish. look like when, when you found this spot? Was it, was it how you imagined this, this place that was your, your beloved rider's favourite place in the For, world? Yeah. Well, it only made sense after the time because it's quite austere and Norman had an austere tendency. It was about 1,800 feet up, so there was no, there was no pretty flowers. <laughs> there was no pretty anything. There were some scree slopes, grey, and coarse grass and some bog myrtle. But it was, I thought it was extraordinarily beautiful in a very, very stripped-down way. It had an amazing outlook, because, see, you were on a kind of shelf looking out and down, and you could see nothing human anywhere in any direction. There's just mountains and the silence, but the silence was full of wind and water chuckling away. It was an extraordinarily beautiful place, but it was Norman's beautiful place, and I think it was largely because of the friends he had fished there with. But we had to try and catch a fish for him. And Loch Green Corrie is famous for its big fish. But as I eventually realised, they were big for a reason, that nobody could catch them. <laughs> so they just got bigger and bigger. And the cake would have been shortly. It took us three days to finally catch one fish. And then we could go home. How do you go about trying to catch a fish in well, one of those you, locks? You, we stood and patrolled the banks. Um, Sometimes with waders, but mostly we just stood at the banks and cast into the loch. You cast and retrieve. You send the line out and kind of bring it back in little jerks, and then about five seconds later you just do it again and again. It's very tiring physically until you get fit for it, until your technique gets better. It takes a great deal of patience, and most of your mind just wanders off um, into other places and memories and times and... But we did have some whiskey with us, and we, 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 tent, we had a tent each, and it was a lovely, lovely time. We spent three days and nights in that place trying to catch a fish and talked about McKeague. They were friends and fans of his as well. Can you read, uh, read the poem at the Lock of the Green Corrie, Oh, Andrew? yeah, sure. I'd love to. I wrote this after I'd finished writing the book, in fact, and I wrote it in Norman's kind of manner, with a kind of echoing of him. 
And it's about how if you spend a lot of time in a wild place, it starts to enter into you and you kind of leak out into it. So this is At the Loch of the Green Corrie. We came to know it a little. It kept its best fish hidden under glassy water behind silver backing of the long day's clouds. We cast and retrieved over that mirror till the green quarry reflected only three bodies of light emptying and filling themselves. That place hooked us by the heart. We were landed and released. Now something of us reclines among these hills and the chuckle of its water runs among the world. How did a, a film come to be made about your quest to fish <laughs> know, in that lock? Yeah. Well, it's funny, you write, you write something and it, it kind of the ripples go out and some years later, five, seven years later, a guy got in touch with me and said, I love this book, I'd like to make a documentary film about you going there and fishing at the Loch Huyen Corrie. And this project sounded great, but we couldn't get any the money for it until I remembered knowing Billy Connolly. I'd, I'd met Billy and introduced him to McKeague, in fact, at the Travers Theatre. I'd never met Billy before, but as soon as he opened his mouth, you know, there's only one person in the world has that voice, though he was clean-shaven at this point. So I introduced him to Norman, and they got on famously. He loved Norman. And Billy was very keen on fly fishing, and his friend Ali Bain, who was a great fiddler, used to play in bands with Billy, was also very keen on fly fishing. So as soon as I got, I sent Billy, I sent Billy a text and said, told him about the Loch Green Quarry. I sent him the book, that's why. I said, would you like to come and fish there with me? I just got immediately a text back, count me in, Billy. <laughs> and as soon as you go to the TV people with that name, count me in, Billy, the money suddenly magically appears. <laughs> and, and Billy did that for nothing. You know, he just did it for expenses because it was a... Like myself, it was a, an act of gratitude. What about the fish? Did they turn up on this <laughs> on this occasion, well, Andrew? Well, we were under pressure to catch something for the for the cameras. You know, we had all the stuff and all this gear and a whole shed full of, of booze that they'd brought for us. And it started snowing in May. <laughs> and you don't fish don't rise and bite in May. But nevertheless, we had to kind of go through it just to kind of demonstrate our commitment. We fished again for two days. And finally gave up. We had one bite, one nibble, and caught nothing. And as, as we were leaving, um, Connolly turned around and shook his fist up at the sky, saying, you're laughing at us. <laughs> you're laughing at us. <laughs> and McKay would have been laughing from that place in which he did not believe. <laughs> well, do you need to catch a fish for it to be a good day fishing? Well, fortunately not, <laughs> because often you don't. I mean, I do sea fishing in Orkney here, which is completely different. Um, you usually catch fish and you expect to, and you eat it, which is great. Most of my fishing, I'd say, about one day and two, I don't catch anything. And if we do catch anything, you put it back. I mean, I do occasionally catch and eat a fish. But nowadays, most fishermen, for ecological and environmental reasons, put them back. So what it's really about is just standing by the water, casting, retrieving and watching the light and letting your mind become healed, I guess. Mm. And then in the evening talking with friends. In that book, uh, At the Lock of the Green Corrie, which you wrote about this, this trip that you made, mm. you remember back to one night when you were a young man and things were a bit of a struggle. It was cold and wet, you were lonely, but you had this sudden thought. Do you remember what came into your head? Yeah, this was in South Queensferry by the Forth River and I was hurrying back before the chips got cold um, in the rain and it was a really cold, windy rain and I suddenly thought, when I am dead, I will love this which is kind of incoherent, but it's exactly what I felt. When I'm dead, I would love to be hurrying home with the smell of hot fish and chips and vinegar rising through brown paper. And it's one of those wake-up moments that happens to you every so often. You think, yeah, when I'm dead, I will love this. The most ordinary things, being with your children, being with friends, fishing alone, whatever. And I try and keep that as a kind of watchword to myself, and inevitably, of course, I wrote about it. That's, that's what I do. 
I, I can't help but be reminded, actually, just it's just come to me, I uh, remember seeing a Billy Connolly show here in Australia and he talked about some guy with a terrible cough at a place he worked early on and and someone was ribbing this guy about this terrible cough and he said, you know, the, the guys up there in that cemetery, they'd kill for a cough like this. <laughs> <laughs> it's a similar spirit. Oh, no, that, that is so Billy. I mean, we spent three days with him. Um, and I, on, he is exactly as you'd expect, the funniest and most liberatingly funny person I've ever met. When he's not being funny and he's silent, he quite, looks quite grim. He's a serious person. But when, as soon as he starts talking, his mind starts sparking. And when we had breakfast in the hotel afterwards, the whole place fell silent. They were getting the free Billy Connolly <laughs> show. I mean, his friend Ali just said, well, how are you, Billy? Do you have a good night? And he was just off. He is so funny. But what I love about Billy's humour is it's entirely liberating. It can be caustic, but it's always liberating about how ridiculous and absurd and wonderful. And his favourite word, I'd say, is love. He said, I love that music. Oh, I love McCaig's poetry. I love fishing. <laughs> and so he's not, he's not a comedian of, of, of hate and anger. He can be angry, but essentially he's a poet of, of love and foolheartedness. Oh, I've, I've loved talking to you, Andrew, and, and feeling like I've gone on a trip from Orkney to the Himalayas to, to the wild, uh, far west of Scotland. Can we finish with a poem, with signing off? Oh, yes, signing off. That's me off, then. You should not be surprised. Departure has long been my nature and theme. Surely you did not think this could go on. Words condensing each morning, breath on the chill pane where you stood fingering your name. Or those evenings when caresses like carrier pigeons wheeled down the darkening valley of your heart. Those notes that passed so freely between us, gift them to charity or oblivion. Love and farewell. Next time we meet, I shall speak of a rival. Andrew Gregg, thank you so much for, for being my guest on Conversations. Oh, oh, thank you. I've enjoyed it. It's great. The Scottish writer Andrew Gregg was my guest on Conversations today. Andrew's latest book of poetry is Later That Day. His book about fishing in the footsteps of Norman Mackay is at the lock of the Green Corrie. And his book about golf is called Preferred Lies. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hi, I'm Jonathan Green and I'm in Paris with a burning question. Taxi! How many Parisians live within five minutes of a bakery? Oh. Oh, really? Well, that's extraordinary. Thanks. This and other secrets of the world revealed in a new season of Return Ticket, the travel podcast that takes you on journeys of the mind. In this new season, we're off to Paris, Venice, Kuala Lumpur, Las Vegas and Timbuktu. Yes, that's right, Timbuktu. Where even is that? Return ticket. Subscribe on the ABC Listen app.